get the latest updates or to reach out to me directly, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at GermaniaPod. Hello, welcome to Germania, Divided and United. Episode 1.13, The Battle of Britus. In our last episode, I provided some background on the different German confederations that emerged in the 3rd century and played a major role in the fall of the Western Roman Empire over the next two centuries, and then established many of the successor kingdoms in Europe in the 5th and 6th centuries. The main confederations we will focus on will be the Franks, the Alamanni, the Vandals, and the Goths. I have sometimes seen the broader tribal community divided into the Western Germans, closer to the Rhine River, including the Franks and the Alamanni, and the Eastern Germans, based north of the Danube in Central Europe, including the Goths and the Vandals. And yes, the sources that refer to the tribes in this way are from the 19th century, before West and East Germany developed the Cold War connotations we are more familiar with today. Now, from the perspective of historical accuracy, I don't think this division makes much sense, and trying to use it would lead to putting too much focus on the similarities within the Western or Eastern tribes. Uh, For example, I wouldn't have wanted to tell a Goth that they were basically the same as a Vandal, uh, while putting too much focus on the differences between the Western and Eastern tribes. Uh, Obviously, plenty of the different Subai tribes integrated with both the Western Alamanni and the Eastern Vandals over time. However, from a narrative standpoint, this does help in telling the story of the tribes as they poked, prodded, twisted, and eventually broke the Roman Empire from the 3rd through the 5th centuries. So, moving forward, a given episode or series of episodes will focus on the events in one region. Either the Western Germans and their process of separating Gaul from the Empire while coming to dominate the Western armies and imperial court, or the Eastern Germans in their overrun of the Balkans in Italy and the influence they had with the Eastern Roman Empire. We are going to start in the East this week with the introduction of the Goths to the Romans in the mid-3rd century. As we covered last time, Rome's 3rd century crisis really got going in 235 with the assassination of Alexander Severus and the ascension of Maximinus Thrax. Maximinus Thrax is an interesting figure for our purposes for a few reasons. Uh, He was a true barracks emperor who joined the army as a young man as a common soldier and rose up the ranks until finally the troops under his command respected him enough to make him the emperor. Uh, The administration of Alexander Severus put Maximinus in charge of training the new recruits for the Danube Legion early in his reign, so by the time of the coup, most of the troops from those critical legions had been trained by Maximinus and felt a personal loyalty to him. Uh, He was born to peasants in the province of Moesia and never set foot in Rome. As such, he was seen by the aristocrats of the Senate as a barbarian, unfit to lead. For his part, Maximinus found the citizens of Italia to be a bunch of soft, spoiled brats who looked down their noses at those who protected them. Now, the combination of these factors led Maximinus to make his biggest policy decision, which started a vicious cycle that wasn't stopped until the reign of Diocletian 50 years later. Before going off to kill Germans east of the Rhine, Maximinus immediately doubled the pay of the soldiers. To find the cash to make these payments, the administration used three methods. 
one, increasing the tax burden on the people. The rich would bribe the tax collectors to avoid paying their full share, which just meant that collectors had to pull more money out of the lower classes. Two, confiscating the property of his opponents. So while the rich could bribe their way out of taxes, if they spoke out against the emperor, or if he took some of their comments the wrong way, or if they had nice property that he wanted, they were either executed or exiled, and either way, all their property went to the state, which meant the army at this point. Number three, minting more money, which typically required reducing the silver content in the coins. I am simplifying this a bit as the prioritization of the army over the rest of the state really got going with Septimius Severus more than 40 years earlier, and certainly Maximinus did not invent any of those three methods for revenue generation. Now, as you might expect, this combination of policies did not make Maximinus Thrax particularly popular anywhere outside of a legionary camp. In 238, a revolt broke out against him in North Africa, which was quickly endorsed by the Senate and joined by the soldiers and citizens of Italia. What followed was the year of the six emperors, with different claimants to the throne being killed in battle, being killed by their own troops, committing suicide to avoid torture and execution, or, disappointingly, just dying of disease. By the end of the year, the Romans ended up with a teenage boy as emperor, who mostly served as a puppet for other ambitious men of various levels of competence and loyalty. But more importantly for us, with Rome engulfed in civil war and the borders under garrisoned, it was time for the Goths to announce their presence. Wherever their original origin, over the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD, the Goths migrated south from the Vistula River to modern Ukraine, on the border of the Roman province of Dacia. As mentioned last week, the unique burial practices of the Goths help us track their movements over time. These include the use of small stones surrounding the burial site, and, unlike most other Germanic tribes, weaponry was not buried with the dead. Perhaps the Goths felt the best way to honor the dead was to use their weapons to kill additional enemies. Our best primary source on the Goths comes from their historian Jordanus, who was not writing until 300 years later, but did do a good job recording Gothic oral traditions and working from earlier histories that, unfortunately, have since been lost to us. From their oral traditions, it was the Gothic king Philomer who initiated their migration to the land that they called Oyum. Philomer supposedly lived five generations after King Berig, who from the oral tradition was the king who led them out of Sweden. Again, the archaeological evidence on that migration is mixed at best. According to Jordanus, the Goths of this era practiced human sacrifice to a war god similar to Mars, but I have not seen corroborating evidence of this. The aims of Jordanus' propaganda are both to glorify the Goths, but also to show their embrace of Christianity over time. So we have to take everything he says with a grain of, or perhaps an entire shaker, of salt. Now, this is getting way ahead of the story, but I think it's interesting, and also I will probably forget to mention it if I don't share it now. Uh, the legacy of the Goths is now carried on by the subculture of the same name, which grew out of the 1980s Gothic rock scene in the United Kingdom. When we refer to Gothic art and the Gothic identity today, the things that most immediately come to mind are dark clothing, dark makeup, a preoccupation with death, and a focus on the sadness of life. This imagery comes from the Gothic cathedrals and Gothic architecture from the first half of the last millennium, 
We will cover that architecture in more detail much later on. But the interesting thing for the modern goth movement is that the gothic architecture was not referred to such while it was being built. It earned that moniker from later Italian Renaissance masters who, who found the dominant style of continental Europe to be ugly and barbarous and started referring to it as a German style in a derogatory manner. This is one of the many examples of a political or cultural movement being known historically by the insulting nicknames given from their enemies. The term Goth was attached to the architecture due to the Goth sacking of Rome, with the implication that these barbarians had destroyed the majesty of ancient Rome and now replaced it with these hideous buildings. So really the modern term Goth comes from a dominant culture looking down its nose on the cultural practices of another group that it didn't fully understand. So, maybe our current Goths have more in common with their barbarian ancestors than we usually think. I wonder if Morticia Adams would have been popular in 5th century Ukraine. The oral tradition does suggest that the Goths were a tribe that practiced monarchy earlier than others, as opposed to the more democratic chief model discussed in the last episode. At a high level, monarchy does seem to be a practice that was more common earlier with the eastern tribes as compared to the western tribes. The Goths battled with the tribes in the region until they became the dominant force along the Black Sea coast by mid-3rd century. In 238, the Goths began to raid into Dacia and Moesia, sacking a few small cities. Obviously, with Dacia's location north of the Danube, it was difficult for the Romans to manage entry and exit into the province, and it became a prime target of Gothic ambition. Over the next decade, the Goths continued their raids, likely with parties ranging from a few hundred to, at most, a few thousand men. They would engage in some skirmishing with the legionary troops in Moesia, but at this point the goal was not to engage in all-out battles with Rome. Get in, get the desired loot, and get back to safety north of the Danube. As an aside, this loot was not just material goods, but it could also include people taken back as slaves. Now, especially in this early period, referring to these raids as the work of the Goths can be a bit misleading. They were still relatively new to the region and had to compete and cooperate with other German and Sarmatian tribes. Both the small raiding parties and larger armies would have included participants across several tribes. This is especially true when we talk about the Gothic armies of the 240s and 250s which would have included the Tafali, the Roxolani, the Hurls, the Carpi. Jordanus also cites that certain Vandal tribes, including the Astringi, fought with the Goths at this point as well, although there are reasons to believe that at this point the Gothic and Vandal tribes were more at war with each other than collaborating together. Additionally, plenty of deserters from the Roman army joined the barbarian tribes. Life in a Roman legionary camp was tough, full of discipline and most likely ending in a terrible, anonymous death. Perhaps some found the more egalitarian life of the tribes to be more attractive. There were plenty of reasons to defect and potentially get rich capturing the wealth of the empire you had previously protected. When the emperor Philip the Arab appointed Messius Quintus Decius to lead the legions in Moesia and stop the Gothic raids, Decius dismissed some of the soldiers from service, due to a combination of their inability to protect the borders and their involvement in a short-lived plot to help their previous commander overthrow Philip. Many of those discharged soldiers found their way into Gothic camps by the time of the first major battles between Rome and the Goths. 
In 249, Decius was proclaimed emperor by his troops, and he overthrew Philip. I wonder if he thought about the troops he had dismissed for their disloyalty and wished to have them back. Again, taking advantage of the distraction of a civil war, a Gothic army, led by a new king named Kniva, crossed the Danube in late 250 and began raiding down into the Balkan Peninsula. In the Roman historical accounts, this Gothic army is typically described as being massive, tens of thousands of men, though at that point, given the relative disunity of the tribal groups in the region, it would have been difficult for Kniva to assemble more than ten to 15,000 men at the very high end. Either way, the force was enough to break through the troops left on the frontier and to overwhelm any resistance the citizens of the smaller towns and cities of the region could muster. The city of Martianopolis paid the Goths a tribute to avoid being sacked, and eventually the Goths moved to sack a larger city, Nicopolis. Before they could breach the walls, they received word that Decius's army was approaching and decided to break off the siege with their captured loot. Decius was pushing his army hard, wanting to recapture the stolen treasure and punish the Goths for their invasion. As the emperor, it is hard to imagine Decius would have led an army smaller than 15,000 men, and 20 to 25,000 is more likely. Anything less, and he risked being overpowered by another frontier general with dreams of glory. So it is safe to assume the Romans enjoyed somewhere around a 2 to 1 advantage in troop numbers. Additionally, Decius felt he had the overwhelming advantage of leading Roman troops against barbarians. So he was sure the Goths were running as fast as they could, and he wanted to push his army to overtake them. Kniva, however, figured that the Romans would be pursuing his army aggressively, and he planned accordingly. He and his troops lay in ambush for the Romans. After a hard day of marching, the legions broke for camp near the modern city of Stara Zagora in Bulgaria. As they were making camp, the Goths came from over a nearby hill and surprised and scattered the Romans, who were forced to retreat in a disorganized fashion. Now, if the Goths had followed up on their initial victory, they may have been able to completely break the Roman army within a few days, but that was not an item on the agenda. Get in, get the desired loot, and get home. Why waste time fighting extra battles against the Romans, even if they did have an advantage? During the late Roman Empire, as they constantly dealt with tribal armies raiding into their territory, the fact that military victory was not the tribe's real objectives saved the Romans on several occasions and allowed them to regroup following small losses. This, however, was not one of those times. Honestly, the Romans probably would have been better off if the Goths had dealt them a more crushing defeat now and prevented them from fighting their next battle. Now that the Romans were scattered, Kniva led his army to lay siege to the city of Philippopolis. Siege warfare was never a strength of the various Germanic tribes, but they managed to break into the city after a lengthy holdout, as Decius did not organize any relief effort. It is possible that the Roman deserters in the army, combined with Roman siege weapons confiscated from Decius's army or elsewhere during their campaign, provided the edge the Goths needed to seize the city. It is also possible that the garrison commander, Julius Priscus, betrayed the city into their hands. In the ensuing sack of Philippopolis, 100,000 residents of the city were killed. Once the city was sacked, Kniva kept Priscus as a hostage and proclaimed him the new emperor of Rome, attempting to turn Rome into a client kingdom of the Goths. 
This claim was not recognized, and Priscus died soon after, cause of death unknown. Now, Decius and his army regrouped after their embarrassing defeat and again went in pursuit of Caneva and the Goths early in 251. Understanding his enemy well, Caneva decided to give Decius the one thing he wanted most at this point, a set-piece battle against the Goths. Unfortunately, in his desperation to force the Goths into a battle, Decius conceded the decision of the location of the battle to Caneva, and Caneva picked his ground very well. The armies met near the city of Abritus. Caneva had arranged his army into three lines, with his third line organized a good distance back from the first two. Unbeknownst to the Romans, the area between the second and third lines was marshland that was difficult to move through. The battle began, and the Romans broke through the first Gothic line, and then they broke through the second Gothic line, and it certainly must have felt like they were about to win the battle. As they charged to attack the third Gothic line, however, the Romans ran directly into the swamp. Roman military tactics were very dependent on a group of men moving in unison. Now they could barely move at all. At this point, the Goths slaughtered them. Decius himself died in the fighting, and his body was never recovered. It was the first, but not the last, time a Roman emperor died in battle against a foreign enemy. In later Roman histories, there were allegations that Decius' second-in-command, Gaius Tribonianus Gallus, had betrayed the army in some way prior to or during the battle, but no one then and no historians now really believe those rumors. Certainly, whatever Roman troops survived the Battle of Abritus did not believe Gallus had betrayed them, as they elevated him to emperor following the battle. The nature of this Goth victory gives us a good opportunity to have another discussion about German battle tactics. As mentioned in earlier episodes, at this point, the tribes did not differentiate between cavalry and infantry in battle. Those who had horses relied on them for faster mobility, but they would still dismount and fight on foot alongside their kin. There is some reason to believe that after migrating to the more open terrain of Ukraine, horsemanship may have become more important to the Goths, as the land was now more conducive to ranging over wider territory. Over time, when Romans would conscript German warriors into their armies, there seemed to be some preference for cavalry. There are records from the late 4th century that refer to the 8th Cavalry Cohort of the army in Egypt as the Vandalorum, suggesting they were entirely Vandal conscripts. I'm not sure how much this suggests improving German horsemanship, however, versus a combination of the facts that, one, the best warriors in a tribe were typically wealthier, and thus were more likely to own a horse, as they had better opportunities to earn money via raids, serving as mercenaries for Rome, and in exchange for loyalty from chiefs and kings. Two, the Roman legions were the backbone of the army and trained to fight in unison, and it would have been difficult to incorporate the independent-minded outsiders into the ranks very quickly. And three, the Roman infantry was the backbone of their army, so the Romans may have been more reluctant to teach the barbarians too much about their training methods and the finer details of their tactics. A shift in the Germanic use of cavalry also does not really explain the victory at Abritus, as either on foot or mounted, it would not have done much good for the Goths to charge into the same marsh that had just trapped the Romans. This suggests that by the mid-3rd century, Goths were using more projectile-based weapons, throwing javelins or spears or firing arrows from a bow. 
Once the Romans were immobilized, the third Gothic line, and potentially the remnants of the first two once they reorganized, could have rained down projectiles with impunity. After his massive victory, Kniva negotiated a peace with Gallus. The Goths would return to their homeland with their captured loot. That was their primary objective at this point, and it's not like the Romans could do anything to stop them. Additionally, the Romans agreed to pay annual tribute to the Goths in exchange for them staying out of Roman lands. It was these payments that outraged Gallus's critics and led to later rumors that he had collaborated with Kniva. But really, at this point, he just needed to secure a peace that let him maintain whatever was left of the Moesian legions and the rest of Decius's army. The Romans were in no position to make demands at the negotiating table. As noted in episode 1.8, the Germanic threat was a nightmare for Romans because it represented a combination of military weakness with internal anarchy. In 251, with an emperor dead, the army defeated, and no clear path forward, the Romans reached their lowest point since the start of the Imperium with Augustus nearly 300 years earlier. Was Rome going to be bent to the will of an invincible Gothic king? No, it wasn't. Not yet, anyway. Despite winning this smashing victory, Kniva really disappears from the record after Abritus. Again, the decentralization of tribal authority and the multi-ethnic nature of the coalition meant that Kniva would not even be able to bend his own people to his will, at least not in the long term. Bringing back treasures, luxuries, captives, and the promise of future payments from Rome was enough for the Goths at this point. But as their internal cultural dynamics changed and external pressures became more severe, aka the Huns, the Goths and their Germanic brothers and cousins would not be content just to take their prizes and go home. Eventually, they would want to make their prize a new home in Rome. (laughs) 